Hey, thanks for joining us here. We are having a really great time talking about a variety of different things as it relates to money. So we're just going to dive right in. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verse 36. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. Now, if you don't know where the book of Mark is, don't want you to feel bad about that. I just want you to use your table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. Here's what it says. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for our opportunity to be in this space together. And I recognize that we're doing this virtually, digitally, whatever language it is that we want to use. But I also recognize, Lord, that there is a unity that takes place when we engage your word, word together. And so, Lord God, as we are doing this today, I ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you today. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so here's a quick question. Have you ever convinced yourself to buy something that you didn't really need? I know that I have. And if you take a look at last week's message, you'll hear me talk about that very briefly in terms of my desire to buy things to feel good and, and that kind of idea. But when we buy these things, we convince ourselves to buy these things that we don't in fact actually need. Um, there's a criteria that we tend to use, right? And, and, and even if there isn't a criteria, maybe often it's just an impulse that we have. Maybe we decide that we deserve it, right? I've worked really hard. I, I go and I do my work so I should be able to do this thing, right? So maybe we decide that we deserve it. Maybe we've seen someone else with it and we've envied it, right? Like, hey, so-and-so's got this thing. They picked it up and I just really like that thing. So I want to go and get that thing for me as well. Um, and so maybe that's you. Maybe that's something that you've done. Or maybe it's just been a really, really tough week. And we know that by buying that thing, it'll give us that momentary happiness. Have you ever bought something that you convinced yourself to buy that you know you didn't really need? And the reason we ask this question is because when we do buy these things, like in the moment it feels really good, but then after a while we feel like we, we, we understand that that moment fades, right? Like it, it's not there forever. And so we get home, we have this thing and we're excited about it and it brings us this pleasure. But then later, like that excitement we had about that purchase, it, it wanes, right? Like it fades. And so what ends up often happening is that um, it doesn't bring us the joy that we had until, and, and we get that joy back really when something new catches our eye, right? That's what happens and it's a pattern uh, it's not necessarily a healthy pattern, but we see something, we think it's going to bring us a sense of joy, and so we buy it, and then we bring it home, and after we've had it for a while, it doesn't bring us the joy it once had initially. And so something new catches our eye, and when this new thing catches our eye, we see it as an opportunity to experience that joy again. Why? Because for a lot of people, joy from possessions is fleeting. Like we... That's a big thing here. Joy from possessions is fleeting. We see these new things. We feel that opportunity for joy again, but again, it wanes. And so joy from possessions is fleeting. 
Buying something is often an easy fix, but it's not a sustainable cycle, right? Like, because for one, it, it just gets expensive over time. And, but once that joy passes, the other thing we know is that that possession that we had, well, it stays. Now, we could choose to sell it, and there's a lot of different ways to go about doing that, but we can sell those things in order to be able to buy these new things. But it's still this cycle of owning and buying and selling and owning and buying and selling and sometimes just collecting all of it. And we, there's all entire television programs that are based on this concept. Possessions, possessions come with their own set of costs. And not only do we feel the drive to buy these new things, but we also have a hard time letting go of some of these old things, right? Like we feel driven to make more and more money to get stuff that we think we really need. And then over time, if we're not getting rid of some of this stuff, we're just collecting. It's taking up space. And thinking about material things can be a distraction from the things that really matter. Like what was the reason that you weren't feeling good in the first place that caused you to want to buy that thing. Whatever that thing was. It's kind of a crazy cycle, right? But it's one that can hurt us. It's one that can hurt our careers. It can hurt our marriages, our families, our kids, uh, even our hopes and dreams. It can also keep us from doing what God might be calling us to do in our lives. As a matter of fact, he actually warns against this kind of behavior. In Matthew 6, 19 to 21, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so we're currently in this series called Make Space. It's all about discovering keys to having more space in our finances so that we are freed up to be the people that God has called us to be. And it's hard to make space if we're constantly bringing more things into that space. One of the biggest ways we can make this sort of space in our lives is to learn to limit the pull of more, right? This this desire that that we have for more stuff, more things. And so I want to dive into, um, this week I want to dive into things a little deeper by asking like two questions that I'm hoping that we're going to be able to, to figure out here. Do I need stuff to make me happy? Right. So that's one question I think that's a valid and important question to ask. And then second to that, like how much stuff do I actually need in life? And these are separate, they're connected for some. But do I need things to make me happy? And I think a lot of people intuitively will say no, but we, we live as though we need these things, right? As a matter of fact, sometimes we even use that language. Well, I just need that new thing, right? Like that new phone comes out and, and you're perfectly fine with the one that you have, but you need that new one. Why? Like, why is that a need versus a want? And how do you evaluate and what metrics are you using to determine that need? But the second question is equally important. Like, how much stuff do I need? Like, how much stuff do I need to have? And thinking through these questions, I think, is going to help us find balance and move us into a place of gratitude rather than in a place of just desiring more. And gratitude and moderation will lead to contentment. And if you've ever struggled with this language or this sense of consumerism, right, 
the idea that I'm just going to go and get, I'm going to gain from whatever these experiences are that I walk into. Contentment is the off-ramp to the pull of consumerism or to the cycle of consumerism. Contentment is the off-ramp to the cycle of consumerism. Philippians 4 verse 12, uh, Paul is addressing the Philippian church. This is a church that um, they were known for their affection for one another. Like they were just a really solid people who loved each other and took care of each other. And to them, he says, in referencing life, he says, I know what, I, what it is to be in need. I know what it is to ha have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I think this is critically important because sometimes I wonder if we believe that this idea of contentment is something that we can't get to, we can't achieve. But Paul here says that contentment is a learnt skill. It's a learnt skill. So he knew what it was like to have a lot. So he knew what it was like to have little. And in the midst of both of those scenarios, he was content. He learned how to be content. Our culture doesn't celebrate contentment though, right? We are taught that uh, our value comes from hard work and impressing people. That life is about me. It's very hard to think of our value, that our value might not come from what we can earn or how many hours in the day we can work or how much stuff we have. And it's interesting to me because one of the ways that we place value on people is a very simple question. Hey, how are things going? And if they don't say busy or give the indication that they have tons of stuff going on, it's almost as if we look at them and like, well, are you really ever doing anything in life then? Almost. I wonder if it's a subconscious thing that we offer forward rather than a conscious thing that we offer forward. But when we hear someone say that they're busy, we feel like that's the natural response. Yeah, right. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, all of us are busy. Uh, and it's almost as if this, there is this unspoken virtue of busyness that we are to attain to. But our value doesn't come from that. When we look into verses like this, we see that God's word values not the status of our lives, but the way we live our lives. Paul says he's learned the secret of contentment. Contentment is not something that you're born with. It's not within your DNA. It's not a genetic thing. It is something that with God's help can be learned. And that's good news for us. It means that all of us can learn to be content. So how do you do that? How do we learn to be content? I think there's three mental shifts that, uh, that we need to lean into in order to develop contentment. So the first one would be this. To be content, I will refuse to trade self for stuff. I will refuse to trade self for stuff. Jesus once asked a very important question about our relationship to our stuff. Um, and this is, of course, Mark 8.36. Now, Mark 8.36 is, is not a standalone passage. It's in a context, as is all the scriptures. The context that it's in, though, is in what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And immediately before this, he is telling people that in order to be his disciples, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross, 
and follow him. And so it is this language of sacrifice. It is this language that I will fix my eyes on him rather than on me. And so he asks this, and it's, it's almost this comparative statement that he offers, right? Because he's talking about what it means to be his follower and what it means to chase the world. And so he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? He's talking about how we value things and, you know, what value we place on our souls, what value we place on our stuff and, and the stuff of the world. And so we give great concerns, we know, about material things, right? Like we give great concerns and we could take courses and listen to advisors, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but we have a heavy focus on things like our investments, our savings, our, um, our retirement plans, the accumulation of property and stuff. And we seem very interested in multiplying what we have. But at the very same time, we, seem, we just seem to show less interest in multiplying the things that are eternal. It's not foolish to be wise about how to manage our money, but it's not necessarily foolish. It's also not necessarily foolish to lay plans for our financial futures. I'm not suggesting that we don't plan ahead and that we don't practice good financial management, because of course, that's what this entire series is about. But isn't it strange that we value those things to the point that we obsess over them? And we give very little attention to that which is eternal. Like we, we live life as though everything hinges upon those finances and the stuff that we can accumulate. We ensure that we ensure our property, we ensure our lives, we are very urgent and very careful about that kind of stuff, so much so that the people we care about, we want them to be equally urgent and careful about those things. And so we function as if we want to maximize what we get here. But that can cause us to minimize what we have there. You see the difference? It's strange, right? Like Jesus actually says that it's the other way around that should be our focuses. Eternity is the ultimate focus of Jesus' followers. Here's some stats that I came across. Now, this is specific to, um, to the U.S., but I think that there is some truth for our end as well. Uh, we spend, or the North American spends, 103% of what we make. Now, you can very well see that that's just going to cause a person to get into debt, right? But we seem to feel compelled to buy before we can even afford to buy. Always chasing material things can hurt our marriages. Couples actually list spending habits as one of the leading reasons for divorce. And in, in the U.S., the average person works 47 hours a week. And so when we're working 47 hours a week, that something needs to be understood is that that's quite a bit more than most countries. Those are, our, those are hours that are not spent with family, with serving community, or spending time in communion with God. Right? So what happens is we get so busy with work, so infatuated almost with our ability to work, that we dive more into it and... It takes away from other areas of life. Work and finances are two of the leading causes of stress 
in Americans, with 75% of doctors' visits involving symptoms and conditions brought on by stress. And so for a lot of people, the cost can actually be life itself. Like, this is not the way to live a wise life. In fact, it's a meaningless way to live life. Here's what Ecclesiastes say. Now, this is from Solomon, and Solomon is considered the wisest person ever within human history. So in Ecclesiastes 4, four verses uh, 4 to 9, he says this, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. And this too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls of toil and chasing after the wind. Now, the language of toil and chasing here is the idea of putting an effort towards work and that sort of idea. So it's good to want to provide for our families and have enough to be a blessing to others. And yet, there's a big difference between working and wearing ourselves out with work. God wants us to have equal measure of hard work and rest in our lives. So, big one here, a really, really important point that we need to understand. And it changes things, right? Like when we understand this, when we get this concept that we refuse to trade ourselves for our stuff, then how we work and how we engage with finances changes and it alters things. Now, the second thing would be this. Use money, don't chase it. Most of us have heard a version of this before, right? First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, here's what we need to understand. Money, in and of itself, not the problem. Money itself does not actually have a moral ethic or anything else like that. It, it doesn't make a statement. Money in and of itself is not the issue. The Bible says that it's actually the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. So money itself is not the problem. God is not anti-money. He knows that having money to take care of our needs is both necessary and a blessing. So, because he, like he blesses us in these ways, giving us opportunity to be able to earn and, and the skill sets to be able to do these things. And there's an economy that is built within our world where people naturally trade things with one another. And so these kinds of things are already intrinsically part of our experience. He's not anti-money. There's nothing wrong with making money. Making money would enable you to save more, would enable you to give more, and do more in the world. So, so money itself is not the problem. The problem is the love of money, the chasing after money. And so what God is concerned about is not us having money, but money having us. He doesn't want us to fall in love with it. That's, that's the key here. Who's actually ultimately in control? God wants us to or wants to help us avoid this blind desire for money, and he cautions us to make sure that we are the ones that manage it, and it is not what manages us. And the other thing I think that comes along with this is to understand that 
in our world today, the way people talk about money is that there's a lot of promises that it makes. Promises to fix our problems and bring us peace and help us feel secure, but it's not always true. We start to think that having more money will fix almost everything that troubles us, right? In our lives, and, and, and we say all kinds of weird things. Like, tell me if you've ever said something like this. When I get that raise, I can finally relax, or things will be easier. Once I get a little more in the bank, it'll all be smooth sailing. Or maybe something like this. If we can just get over this hump, then we can really start to enjoy life again. And these are promises that get made. But money doesn't guarantee happiness and it doesn't guarantee fixing things. We're bombarded with ads and other messages every day that subtly and sometimes not so subtly communicate to us that if we have lots of money, then we're going to be happy. We're going to feel more fulfilled in some fashion. But if that were true, then the wealthiest people in the world would be the happiest people in the world. And all the statistics tell us that that, in fact, isn't true. So we can't let it have us. Like we got to use money. We don't chase money. Third point would be this. Enjoy what I have. Enjoy what I have. Appreciation for what we already have is important as controlling our desires to always have more. Just as important. And this ability to enjoy what we have is a gift that God wants to grant us. If Ecclesiastes 5.19, Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. So, like it sounds so simple, and yet it's surprisingly difficult. We either are too driven by achieving the next thing that we, we don't want to pause or feel like we don't deserve what we already have and let that sense of guilt keep us from appreciating the gifts that we've been given. Or maybe we just crave more and it's an unquenchable desire. You ever gotten something special for someone? Maybe it was just a really high quality gift, right? Um, maybe it was something expensive or something just really beautiful. Maybe you decided to put it away and just have it parked away a little bit until just the exact right moment to bring it out, to use it. And so it sits in a box in the back of a closet or on a shelf in the garage. And you know what happens? We tend to forget about it or outgrow it. And the perfect opportunity never arises. And so this wonderful gift just goes to waste. God doesn't want us to treat the good things in our life in this way. He wants us to see them. He wants us to appreciate them. And he wants us to enjoy them. So how do we tap into this gift that God wants to give us? Well, I think the, what's the key to truly enjoying our lives is actually one word. It's the word gratitude. Gratitude is an incredibly powerful thing. It changes our hearts from wanting the next thing to focusing on the thing right in front of us. So that's, what, that's what happens. Like we, I'm not thinking about that next thing. I'm thinking about the thing that's right here, right now, and I'm grateful for it. It drains the energy out of our greed, and it gives us this new ability to appreciate, to enjoy what's in hand. And, and I think it's important for us to have a, an intentional relationship with gratitude. It's more than just a general feeling of thankfulness that springs up once in a while. 
It's the kind of gratitude that we're talking about here today is, is intentional, it's purposeful, it's, it's a choice, it's a decision that we make to focus on the things that are right here, right now, right in front of us. And practicing this gratitude, well, that sounds all good, but how do I apply this in the real world? Okay, so first thing is this, we ask for God's help. How do I become a, a person of gratitude that can lead them to contentment so I'm, I get off of the off-ramp of the consumer cycle? We ask God for help. We ask Him to help us to enjoy everything that we've got. Everything that you have in life, that you can enjoy it. We pray for that. We ask for His help in that. Second, we start to thank God for every good thing. So we thank Him. Thank Him that you woke up today. Thank Him that you're able to get around. Thank Him that, you're, that you've got food that you can eat, regardless of, of how much or what kind. Thank Him for the people that are in your life. And some people, this is the kind of thing that works for them, but for some people, they journal. And they start this gratitude journal, right? Where every day they write down the things that they're thankful for. Uh, whether they do that at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day or both, it's a gratitude journal. And at the end of the day, with your families, um, think about the special things that you're thankful for. Right? Like this is something that we pass on to our kids as well. Like, what is something that you're thankful for today? And as we lean into these things, here's what I can promise you. If you're a person who has children, um, when you're teaching your kids about gratitude and you're practicing the activities of gratitude with them, when you sit down at the dinner table and you're saying, hey, what are you grateful for today? Uh, you're the teacher there. The person who learns the most through teaching is the teacher. You're the one who's doing the study. You're the one who is pushing this forward. You're the one who's being very intentional about it. And in doing so, it becomes an intrinsic part of who you are and in your life. And you start to live this thing out more. So it becomes a natural teaching rather than a forced teaching. And so when we lean into these things, we develop a heart of gratitude. And so as we do more and more our appreciation for the things that we have, they'll just increase. And so as we focus on what we already possess, our heart will become more content and tranquil. We're not going to be pushing towards the things that we don't have. We're not going to long for those things. We're going to appreciate, we're going to be grateful, and in doing so, we're going to be able to have joy in the things that we have. Listen, there's something to remember, and this is kind of the last point here. God doesn't mind you having good stuff. He just doesn't want the good stuff to have you. Catch that? God doesn't mind you having good stuff. He just doesn't want the good stuff to have you. And so as we are talking about this particular topic and we're leaning into contentment, leaning into gratitude, there can be a joy with having more or less because our joy doesn't come from the stuff. The joy comes from the one who gives us the provision. And we lean into these things, growing in gratitude. That sounds like a pretty good way to make space for God in our lives so that we can become everything He has intended for us to be. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that we will become a more content people, more gratitude-oriented, Lord, that we will be more grateful for the things that we have. And Lord, regardless of how much we have, whether it's a lot, whether it's a little, that we focus on what's right in front of us and thank you for those things. And may we also then, Lord, pass this gratitude this way of thinking onto the people around us. 
Maybe we would ask our friends, Lord, what are you grateful for today? We ask our spouses, what are you grateful for today? We ask our kids, what are you grateful for today? And allow that to be part of who we are, a grateful people who have an amazing God. Thank you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. 